Matthew 13. My hope and intention in the coming weeks is that I want to look at some of these parables in Matthew 13, which are all about the kingdom, as Jesus tells story after story that display different facets of uh, his kingdom and what he intended and what uh, he predicted and, and uh, what he expected the word of God to do in the earth. And so we're going to start with the parable of the sower, which I anticipate will take us a couple of weeks. And I'll begin just by reading the first eight verses. There's a little interlude in there between 10 and 17 where Jesus is explaining some things to his disciples, but we'll, we'll skip past that. And then a little bit later, we'll pick up from verse 18 onwards where he then explains the parable line by line. But for now, we're just going to start with the first nine verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You can very well picture the, the scenario, and I want you to consider this from a couple of angles, just before we get into the detail of what's happening here. First of all, if we think about this from the perspective of Jesus himself, frequently in the Gospels, when he's preaching, as he does here, um, he leaves the house and he goes to the Sea of Galilee and crowds and crowds of people gather around him. He had a charisma, he was known for his miracles, he was known for his preaching, and people were fascinated by him. He had many fans and admirers, though um, only a section of those were truly devoted followers. But Jesus, being who he is, carrying such integrity, whenever he sees a crowd, as he does on this occasion, he doesn't just tell them things to kind of please them. There were things he could do just to keep the crowd buzzing and going. Um, Like when he fed the the 5,000, that was a crowd pleaser. They loved it. Um, They went home absolutely desperate to try more of this miracle food next time, and they all gather around him again. But Jesus, time and time again, as people are gathering around him, he tends instead to make his, make his best efforts to offend or confuse them, which, um, as you can imagine, wouldn't be a very good church growth strategy if you're trying to start a church and see it grow, but somehow seems to be a hallmark of Jesus preaching that he's either confusing people or offending people. And in the course of this chapter, he manages to do both, of course. But in this first parable, and this is one of the things that disciples get hung up over, is why do you teach them in parables when the people don't even understand what they're about? But for Jesus, I think that a hallmark of his integrity and of his sincerity is that he doesn't just want to teach people things that they want to hear. And that ought to also be true of churches, that a church that only tells you things you agree with is more than likely to be a church which is just reflecting the age, reflecting the world we live in. But a church which tells you things that are offensive at times and which 
um, which confront the ideas which are prevalent in the age is a church which hopefully is a little bit more like Jesus himself, which reflects his message. So you can think of it from his perspective. He's not impressed by numbers. There's a massive crowd on the beach. But Jesus wants instead to make sure that the things he says are genuinely going to cut through and help people. Now think of it from the perspective of the crowd. I think we tend to feel that there's a kind of safety in numbers. And certainly if you were one of the people, potentially thousands on the beach... Um, you would have felt that you maybe had a safe distance from Jesus where you could kind of look at him and be interested in what he has to say, but he's far enough away not to know necessarily what's going on in your heart. But it says in John 2 that Jesus knew the heart of man, that there's a a kind of um, a prophetic, spirit-led ability that he can see through a crowd and see into people's hearts. He can do that on the individual level. He could do it with a whole crowd. And when he speaks in this way and he begins to describe the patterns with broad brushstrokes, the patterns of human hearts, I think everyone on the beach would have sat there, felt pinned to their seat, as it were, knowing that Jesus knew them, that he knows what's going on in you. And that's what the Word of God does. It pierces through. The book of Hebrews says between joint and marrow. In other words, it can split the marrow from the bone. It can get right into the core of things. And a parable like this is designed to do that. It's designed to cut through your defenses, designed to try and help you to reflect on where you are at spiritually. We recognize that everyone is on a different phase on a spiritual journey. Um, Some people would say that they're, they're not necessarily believing in God at all or on a journey towards God or that they know God. Wherever you are, Jesus is wanting to to paint the picture of your heart in these different cameos of the seeds and the soil. And so, in this parable, there are four soils. The first undoubtedly represents somebody who's not a Christian, someone who's not a believer in Jesus, who wouldn't say that they really are a follower of Christ. The last one, again, without doubt, is a picture of somebody who's walking with Jesus, somebody who knows him, who's truly a friend of Christ, and I want to consider that next week. But the two in the middle are a little bit more ambiguous. I don't think I want to come down on either side and say whichever they, which, uh, whether they're describing people who aren't, who are, or who are believers in Jesus. I think there's a power to speak into every situation. Every time I say Jesus, Seth says, Amen. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how many times we can trigger that. It's because we always say, in Jesus' name, Every time we say grace. (laughs) And now he thinks he's entertaining you. (laughs) I want to consider then the first three types of soil here. So three types of hearts. And uh, we just pick up from verse 3. He told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Then Glance down the bottom of the page, we're on page 1441, at the interpretation Jesus gives. Hear then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, this is the path. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is, this is what was sown along the path. This first soil that Jesus describes You can imagine, can't you, that as a a first century farmer goes out to his little field 
Um, there's parts of it that he's ploughed, but just as with modern farms today, there's always a pathway running around the sides which, where the soil hasn't been ploughed and it becomes hard-pressed. It becomes hard-pressed and impenetrable to the seed, which, is rep- which represents the word of God. And Jesus is saying that there are certain hearts that are like that. That they, you can speak the words to them. You can liberally just tell people what you believe about Christ and about uh, the gospel. But then it's not going to penetrate. And the question is, why? Why is it that certain people are, are like that? Why is it potentially that you were like that? There are a couple of answers to that which come out in, this, this, in Jesus' explanation. The first if you look down at verse 19, is he says that such a person hears the word, but he says he does not understand it. Now, we need to be very clear that when Jesus said he doesn't understand it, he's not in any way uh, speaking about a kind of intellectual ability. It's been an incredible hallmark of the church of Jesus that it has represented people from every strata in society and all, covers almost every race on the planet, something we were talking about last week, and every level of intellectual ability. In fact, this is something which Jesus specifically addresses a number of times, but I can think about in Matthew 18 where he, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it means a number of things, but one of them is that you don't need to be clever to be a Christian. And the gospel is quite a simple thing. It's a simple message that Jesus died in your place. He died for your sins. And all you need to do is trust in him. And you're his for eternity. It's not a complicated thing to believe. So it's not, he's not here talking about an intellectual ability. And it has nothing to do with intellect. Jesus was constantly challenging the most intellectual people of his day. And particularly the scholars and the scribes. The guys who were educated um, to the nth degree and cutting them down in humiliating ways. He would shame them and humiliate them for their lack of understanding because the one thing they couldn't see was who he was. And he thought it should have been patently obvious to them. So it has nothing to do with that. Rather, I think what he's getting at here in the parable is that there are things that you can know on one level, in a superficial level, but not truly understand or grasp. Now, we know this is true of so much knowledge in the world. Uh, you can describe a wonderful dish of food, but until you've tasted it, you don't understand what it tastes like. You, don't, you can't quite imagine it, can you? Um, just over a year and a half ago, when my wife was going into labor, her waters broke on Monday, and she didn't give birth till Wednesday. So you can imagine Wednesday night, this was quite an ordeal. Um, hours and hours of pain, growing pains. I don't want to scare Jocelyn, but then... Blood and tearing and injections and all kinds of things. And the reality is, I knew what was going on, but I didn't understand what was going on. And I, there's just, a man will never be able to get into the, the head of a woman in that moment and understand exactly what she's going through. But as we said, of course, she didn't really understand what I was going through either. It was a pretty traumatic moment. But you, you know that there are, there are types of knowledge which you, you can grasp, but not grasp. And when Jesus says here that a person can hear the word of God, the word of the gospel, but not understand it, he's not talking about intellect. He's talking about a spiritual grasping of the gospel, grasping of the truth, where it sinks into the deepest part of you and you get it. It's like a light switching on. 
in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes it in this way. He says the natural person, in other words, just your ordinary guy on the street, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, the truth that Jesus is talking about in the parable, for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them. See, it's the same phrase. He doesn't understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And what Jesus and Paul are telling us, and which it's the message which comes over again and again in the Bible, is that this is not, the knowledge of the truth is not something that you can just wrap your head around necessarily. It begins there. It begins with hearing and understanding at that level, but it, is, it takes so much more. It takes, the way that Paul puts it, is that the eyes of your heart have to be enlightened. There has to be a moment at which it sinks into you and you get it, where the seed has penetrated through the cracks and sunk into the soil. It's not just resting on the surface. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us some pretty downright offensive things about why this is the case. It tells us things like this, that you're dead, basically. It doesn't mean physically dead, but that we're naturally, spiritually dead people, unable to grasp the things of God unless God helps us, unless God's Spirit breathes on us. It tells us that we're blind, that, I, you know, I've I, I've recently watching a few of these Louis Theroux documentaries. He's brilliant, isn't he? Just getting into the cracks of the corners of society that no one else has ever really looked at, and exposing something. But if you take an example like where he goes and visits the kind of white supremacists in the United States, all you can think when you look at them is that they're blind. They seem to genuinely believe from the depths of their being that their kind of Nazi ideology is the true one, is a right one. And the only right description for that kind of way of thinking is that they're blind. Something has corrupted their mind, their way of thinking, and they're blind. But sadly, the Bible tells us that that's true of everybody when it comes to spiritual matters. That although we can have an elementary grasp of the things of God, that maybe that he exists, that he's powerful, and so on, you cannot know God in the way that Jesus is describing, in the way that he shows us, unless the Spirit of God breathes on you, unless he awakens you and brings you to life. Instead, in my experience, what people tend to do is one of two reactions to the the truth. They're either going to reject it or they're going to be apathetic to it. I think people reject the truth of the gospel, what Jesus preached, because it is very hard to believe unless God helps you. It's offensive, as I said, when, God, when the Bible tells you that you are a, a dirty sinner and it uses the most um, strong language to describe the state of your life without God. It's hard to grasp just the, the facts of the gospel that Jesus is supposedly the Son of God that he died and then was risen from the dead. These are not things which I think anybody can be expected to believe without the God help, helping them, without the gift of faith. But the Bible tells us that when God breathes on a person, he awakens them. So people tend to either reject it outright on the one hand or to feel just completely apathetic to the things that we're talking about. Jesus said that it was easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God. And I think the reason we said that about rich people in particular 
is that a rich person tends to feel apathetic about spiritual matters because they don't feel their need for God. It's not true 100% of the time. But the same can be said not only of rich people, but of people who are well-heeled with good family relationships or all kind, wealth in all kinds of spheres of your life. And such people, if they haven't felt the need for God, tend to be like the hard soil. It can be scattered on you. You can hear about God, but it'll never sink in. It'll never penetrate. It'll never make a difference in your life. So Jesus says that they don't understand it. But then he goes on and and tells us a little bit more. He says that the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. In other words, even if, even if you've heard it, you're going to soon forget. And we know this is true of all kinds of knowledge in life. When I was at school, um, I remember certain phrases which stick with me, but I can't really supply the content like, standard deviation. It's a mathematical term. I can't explain to you what it means anymore. I just remember it being written on a board. I can't tell you what year the Magna Carta was signed. I can't tell you when the Munich Putsch happened anymore. And I can't recite my French verb tables anymore either. I don't know about you guys. But there is so much knowledge which if you don't use it, you lose it. And it's true even of the gospel in the sense that when people hear the word of God, if they're not gripped by it, if it doesn't do something in your heart, you're going to lose it. But Jesus said it's more than just a natural thing of forgetting. It's a spiritual thing. He says the evil one comes and snatches away what you've heard. Now, we ought to hear this as a warning. The Bible says that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. With the implication that you never know if you'll have a tomorrow. You never know if you'll ever hear the truth again about Jesus. You never know if you'll ever think about it again. And you can be certain of this, and this is what Jesus is telling us here. He says, the evil one comes and snatches it away. In other words, it can sound convincing to you in a moment, but as soon as you walk away, a thousand messages will come at you from the world we live in, and your own thoughts telling you it's rubbish, telling you it's false, telling you it's not true, and steal it away. And so it presents a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? If there is such a thing as a heart that's like the hardened path in this way that Jesus describes, what's the point in in addressing you or in talking about this? And I would just say two things. I would say, first of all, that if you're worried that that's you, then it, it almost certainly isn't you. But I'd also say that if it is you, there is still hope. That the God who raises the dead in a spiritual sense, can even break up the hard ground in one of two ways, or in both ways. He either plows it through suffering, or he waters it through his kindness. In the book of Romans, Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. One of God's ways of helping us to become open to him is by experiencing undeserved kindness in the thousands of ways that we do in life. The, the possessions that we have, which the fact that we have food on the table, the fact that we live and breathe. He says God's kindness, the fact that he keeps you alive, is supposed to lead you to repentance. But failing that, God is, sometimes comes in with the plow and he scrapes through the soil of your heart, opens it up, breaks it up, 
And it's in those moments of heartbreak, those moments of loss, those moments of grief, those moments where your life is utterly broken that sometimes that's when God is going to speak most clearly to you. That's the first type of heart. I want to deal more briefly with the second and the third, but let's move on. He says in verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Looking down, just maybe turning the page to verse 20, explains this. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. What Jesus is describing here is something very familiar to me, which is that some people, when they hear the message of Christianity, that all your sin can be taken away in a moment when you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he died for you when you trust in him. When people hear that, very often they think this is too good to be true. They can leave feeling utterly overjoyed and emotions can run high. Very often this is what happens in meetings where an evangelist preaches the gospel and sometimes tens, hundreds, and in some cases thousands of people respond in the moment, caught up with the beauty of the thing that they've just heard which is the greatest message man can ever hear. And so they're caught up in emotion. It's an emotional response. And it it presses the question, because Jesus then says it doesn't last long. It presses the question, is emotion wrong? Is it wrong for people to to be caught up in this way? And I want to say categorically, absolutely not. The Bible tells us again and again that real spiritual life the kind of life that God puts inside a person ought to pervade your entire being and it grabs hold of your emotions as well as every part of you. You can't read the Bible without seeing that, that a true belief in God is a belief which gets your whole being alive, including your passions, your love, your emotion for God. And when that isn't true of you, something is deficient. Something needs to be awakened inside you. The problem isn't with the emotion, it's if the emotions are on their own, of course, if there's nothing else to back it up. It's much like um, when you choose to get married to someone. You know, if you, if you are swept up with the feeling, the craziness of being in love, and that's all there is, you don't really know them, and they don't really have the character to go the distance, or you don't, that marriage isn't going to last, is it? Because soon enough the emotions can not be there. What then is the problem that Jesus is describing? And I think it's this. That it's possible for a person to be caught up in the excitement of what Christianity is about. And it is exciting. But for that to be all that's going on in their life. That there's no substance, no foundation. What he's describing here is the soil where there's kind of very shallow layer of soil. And then soon enough the roots hit hard rock and they can't grow, it doesn't develop. And he's saying that although 
there's some elements of life, some response to the gospel. Soon enough, this thing is going to dry out, wither and die the minute the sun beats down on the plant. Now, the reason why Jesus used this as a kind of analogy for what happens to people when they hear the gospel is because Jesus tells us in a number of places that to be a Christian can at times be extraordinarily difficult. Let me just read to you a few parts of the scriptures that tell us this. He says in John 16, he said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says it's possible to be at peace in God even while what you're going to experience is storms all around you in the Christian life. You're going to find yourself in unhappy circumstances, difficult circumstances, things you wouldn't choose. Earlier in John 15, he, said, he puts it this way. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. In other words, if, if you just go along with it, everything that's normal in life, if you just blend in, people are going to love you. But if you choose to be a follower of Jesus, people are going to hate you. He puts it as strongly as that. He says, but because you are not of the world, in other words, because you're different, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, the reason is because they hate me. If they hate me, they're going to hate my followers. He puts it in lots of different ways throughout the Gospels that following him is hard. He describes it as taking up your cross. In other words, taking up the instrument of your own death, which is the cross is the, the thing which Jesus was killed on. And he says to follow him is to, say, is to choose to die to yourself every single day. He said that to follow him is to renounce family at times, to turn away from family, to turn away from lands, to turn away from homes, to walk away from things that ordinarily you find the most comfort, the most peace, the most life, the most joy in, that sometimes these are the very things you have to sacrifice in order to be his follower. And so it follows, doesn't it, in the parable, that an emotional response might not be enough to get you through, because even if you feel good in the moment, if things get hard in the Christian life, how are you going to keep on going? How are you going to keep walking? How are you going to persevere? How are you going to see the distance with Jesus? If we're going to just get a little bit more specific about this, look at how Jesus describes the kind of sufferings which touch this person. He says in verse 21, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he falls away. What he means is that although there are thing, aspects of becoming a Christian which are beyond words wonderful, which you rightly respond joyfully and happily to, there are aspects of the Christian life which only touch you because you're a Christian, aspects of suffering. He says that you suffer on account of the word. In other words, because for the very reason that you are a Christian, you encounter types of suffering which you wouldn't have otherwise encountered. Just to give you a couple of examples, I think of firstly of temptation. You know, if you don't have any desire to please God with your life, if he isn't real to you or you're not living for him, then temptation isn't suffering. 
Temptation might be a weakness. It might be your sort of guilty little secret. But ultimately, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things how you respond to it. But for believers, for people who follow Jesus, temptation is fire and pain and, and suffering. It's described as a trial of fire in the New Testament to walk through this life and to seek to walk with God when at times everything in you is raging against God's will or almost everything in you. And suddenly, being a Christian means that it's harder than being a not, not, not a Christian. There's a kind of suffering which touches you which you never really encountered before. And sometimes the further and harder and longer you resist, you can take it to the very max until, by God's grace, you get through. That's one kind. Another kind, of course, is the response of people. It's very explicit here that when he says tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. I'm deeply conscious that when we talk about persecution for being a Christian, we're not even getting near what's being experienced by Christians in, in Iraq today or various other parts of the world. But... At the same time, I don't want to diminish the reality that to follow Jesus is at times embarrassing. It can be humiliating. It can be shameful. Or you can feel that. You can be tempted to feel ashamed of him. People mock you. People don't understand why you don't go along with what they're up to and so on. These are patterns or kinds of suffering which only arise, only touch you because you follow Jesus. And for no other reason. And so Jesus says, look, if you don't have more than just the happiness of the moment which caught you up when you were so happy to become a Christian, if your faith isn't built on more than that, then you won't get through the trials because soon enough you're going to say, this isn't worth it and pack it all in. And it so saddens me when I see that. I've seen it a number of times. Friends who've come to church been massively overjoyed at what they've heard about Jesus and then the minute things get difficult the shallowness of their faith was shown because they just they gave it up sometimes they're the hardest people sometimes to see come back because they've tried it and they decided this isn't for them and I would just encourage if any of you have experienced that challenge that pain of being a Christian and you're tempted to give up Never give up. There's more to plug into. There's more in Christ to give you the resources and the strength to get through and to discover that there is real joy and real peace in knowing Jesus. Let me bring you to the, the third one, which is the final one we're going to look at today. In verse 7, he says, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And then over the page... Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. He's talking here about the conflicted heart, about a person who is torn in different ways by different demands and desires upon your life. And the analogy, of course, of plants is a very good one. When you put a plant in soil, if you put another plant right next to it, 
The two plants are going to compete. They will compete for nutrients, they'll compete for water, and they'll compete for sunlight until only one of them grows strong and the other one will be weaker. What Jesus is showing us here is that your heart, like the plant, can only worship one God at a time. He made this very clear in Matthew 6, talking about money in particular, where he he calls money mammon, and he says no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. Mammon being the sort of, almost like a name, like a deity for money, saying it's something you worship, something you adore, something you, you live for. And here's the reason why. That to be a Christian is to come under the demands of Jesus, and he demands everything. He demands everything. When he calls a man to be a Christian, he tells him and and invites him to come and and die, as we've been saying. Which means that everything you were living for needs to be submitted and surrendered and offered up to Jesus as his. Your body becomes his. Your relationships become his. Your ambitions in life become his. Your hobbies, your use of time, Everything becomes his. Your possessions become his. That's what he asks for. He asks for everything. And yet, we find that other things in life are drawing us, aren't they? Seducing us, pulling us in different directions. They compete, in other words, for the same resources. Just as the two plants are competing for soil, nutrients, and sun, for water, nutrients, and sun, so also... The loves of your life, the things that you live for, are, 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 are competing for the same devotion that Jesus wants. It's the same playing field, and only one side can win, as it were. That's how Jesus is describing this. And Jesus doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be an appendix in your life. He doesn't want to be a kind of bolted-on add-on like you get at the end of books that are just there to read if you find it interesting or want or particularly have that kind of way of thinking. He's not like that. Jesus says, I want to be everything to you or nothing at all. Which means that if you have thorns in your life, they need to be uprooted and killed. They need to be pulled out and burned on the fire. How do we identify them? Well, I think that one helpful way of thinking about what are the thorns in your life? What are the, the idols, as it were, the things that you're tempted to live for, to worship other than Jesus? It can be thought of it as this way, as two sides of a coin. That on the one side, you can ask the question, what is it I love? What is it that really gets me excited? Now, I'm not saying these things are necessarily wrong. They become wrong when they're abused often or when they become everything to you. But then the other side of it is, what do I worry about? What is it that consumes my mind, which makes me anxious, which keeps me awake at night, which I would fear losing? The one thing which I would never want to give up. You see how it's it's going to be the same thing you love. 
Just two ways of thinking about what these things are in your life. What are the thorns in your life? And Jesus' word comes through clear. If you allow these things to grow in your heart, whatever love, whatever devotion, whatever spiritual reality was there will soon enough wither away and die and your life won't be fruitful. Even if you get through, as it were, by the skin of your teeth, your life will ultimately be barren. It won't have produced anything of eternal value or worth in Christ's sight. And you might think, well, it just sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds like the demands of Christ are far beyond anything reasonable. But I want to tell you and remind you that when Jesus makes a claim on our lives and calls us to sacrifice, calls us to live for him, calls us to put him first in everything, it comes with a promise. There's many ways in the Bible that this is shown to us, but these verses always come back to my mind. From Mark 10, where Jesus says, or Peter actually says to Jesus, he says, see, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, look at our devotion to you, Jesus. And his response is like this. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. It's not going to be a suffering-free life. But he says you're going to have more than you could imagine in this life. And then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, you can never give up more than Christ will give you. You can never possibly sacrifice more than he's willing to fill. And I just want to ask you as a close, which kind of soil do you think you are? Are you like the hard soil who, maybe you've heard about Jesus a number of times, but it's never penetrated, it's never got in, because really you've not understood it, it's never sunk in, you've never grasped it. Are you like the shallow soil that maybe you have some kind of emotional response to Jesus, there's been moments in your life where you thought, yes, this is it, this is what I want to live for, but the minute things get tough, You wither away under the heat of the sun, as it were. Whether temptations or people pulling you away. Or are you like the thorny soil, where there are just, just too much competition in your heart, basically. That Jesus just occupies a section on the pie chart of your devotion. And you've segmented off the part of your life which is for him. When he says, no, it is all for me. And all I want to do is to close is to encourage you that he offers us hope that it is possible to be like the good soil here. He said some seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, it's possible. It's possible that any one of us can hear what he says and respond in the right way. Responded with repentance, which is to kill our sin, put it behind us, and fresh devotion to Jesus. Renewed commitment and heart.